are talking with Patrick Byrne from Overstock.com. Um, and Patrick, uh, I've been uh, reading a little bit about Patrick today, and um, I've got to confess, I, at first, I, uh, my, my impression of Patrick has been that he's been kind of a crazy guy. But as I've been um, reading more in depth about all the things that he's been involved with, um, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. And um, so now we're going to hear um, Patrick's side of the story and uh, hear, hear what Patrick's been up to. So, Patrick, thanks uh, for joining us. Adrian, good to be here, and I know it, it takes a lot to impress an Australian. So I'm, I'm, you've started off on the right foot. Um, I mean, I've, I, I normally try to look into people's backgrounds a little bit, um, and you know, usually it takes a little while to, to find out some of the different things that have been going on. But with you, it's a thing after thing after thing. I mean, do, do you ever stop? Do you ever stop doing what you're doing? I can't believe it. it as they say in theater, it reads better than it played. <laughs> <laughs> it, may, it may seem it may seem like it's one thing after another, but it's it's uh anyway, it reads better than it played. But I so where do we begin? It's your call. Um, I'm interested to know about you. I mean you, you grew did you grow you grew up on the east coast, didn't you? I grew up in New England. I spent a few years in in just outside of Washington D.C. But most of my I was born in Indiana and then grew up around New England. I think of myself as being basically from Vermont and New Hampshire. And but then I lived I lived all over the country and really different places around the world. But I also did a lot of I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area at one point in my life. All right. Um, and so your your father was the CEO of Geico, and then so you spent time when you were growing up with. Uh, a certain guy named Warren Buffett. Yes, I was uh, amongst the tailwinds, and I've certainly had many, but amongst the tailwinds I've had in life was when I was about 13 years old, this funny guy from Omaha used to start showing up and staying at our house, and my parents would let me skip school. So I knew it was pretty special because they never let me do that, and I would just get to hang out with Mr. Buffett, who back then nobody really nobody knew about. He was just this funny guy from Omaha, and I look back over the course of my life, the whole trajectory of my life changed in from a half dozen conversations I had with him as a teenager. Really? What was it that changed? Well, he 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 taught me ways of thinking about business, but then also uh, certainly molded how I think about uh, other aspects of life besides business. In fact, the really interesting thing about Buffett isn't just that uh, he's the richest guy in the world. It's that he's a fellow who figured out life and then applied those rules to business, and he's made a lot of money but, at doing that. But what's really interesting is the things that he figured out about about life, really, rather than just how to make a nickel. Was he compelled? I mean, you were, so you were talking with him, what, 20 years ago, were you? Oh, longer, 30 years ago. So you were talking with him 30 years ago, and he wasn't known then. But I guess he was—he was even by then—he was a pretty successful guy. Was did he come across as compelling then? I mean, did you know he was special apart from what his, your parents said, or did he was what he—it really impacted you what he was saying? Well, I—it I, very much impacted me what he was saying. I could tell he was extraordinary, but it's in a different way. You know, he's not a—he's—he's he's a very plain-spoken fellow. It's like you're getting to talk to a really, really, really smart farmer from the Midwest is what it feels like. Just a, a guy, no pretension, no attitude. He's not uptight like a bunch of rich people are. And he's just a, a cool guy. And he he would explain things about business or about things. And I would say, or he would say, look, I'm going to explain something that people either get in five minutes or they never get in all their life. And he would explain something and he'd be done. And I'd say, are you kidding me? Adults don't get that. And he'd say, oh, 
98% of adults don't understand that. And as I grew older, I learned that he was generally correct. Right. Um, and he was, so he's a nice guy. Oh, he's a wonderful, nice guy. Do you still have a relationship with him today? Yeah, I don't, we sort of have a agreement. I don't talk too much. I mean, he's fine with me telling about our history and the different things I've learned from him, but I don't really like to talk about uh, our relationship. Yeah, you know, nice. he's, he's, ha- he's fine with me talking about the lessons I've learned from him, and I just don't like to talk about any, anything more substantive than that. Yeah, none of them. And so, um, so you moved around a lot, and then you ended up, I mean, why did you end up in Salt Lake City? Well, I was really into, in the 90s, I spent a lot of time backpacking and climbing and skiing, and, and I was, uh, Utah is just a great place for the outdoors life. I think it's the best, except maybe Alaska or something. It's just a fantastic state for that. So I, I was, I made it my home base and at my business home, I would say, and through the 90s, I was moving around, um, uh, the United States and doing lots of different things, but this was always my business base of operations. And then, uh, in 99, Overstock came along. There was a little company that was in the flea market business, basically, is where it got, it was supplying people who were selling things at flea markets and they were just struggling to open a site and such. They were on a fax broadcast model originally. And I made, they were actually on, going out of business, they couldn't make their payroll, so I stepped in and invested and bought a majority share, and then three or four months later, that launched as Overstock.com. Um, and so just one more quick question before, because that's a, a good lead-in to that, is um, are, are you with LDS? I mean, I've, I've been to Utah a bunch of times, and most of the guys I know are. Are, are you as well? I am not, but I like the LDS people very much. Yeah, they're easy to get along with. Yeah. So, so you came along and you you bought out uh, a company that was failing, and then that became Overstock. Is, I mean, so it, it, did it just appeal? I guess you were into value investing, and that's one of the things you picked up with from Warren Buffett. Is that is that why it appealed to you, and you wanted to drive it further? I mean, what was it that made you want to bring it to where it is now? Well, I saw there was this niche in retail that could be that was perfect for putting online, and what that niche is is in normal retail. The retail supply lines were optimized for mass quantities of identical goods from a small number of suppliers. And so when sometimes the goods become available in small quantities and either somebody canceled an order or they only sold through nine-tenths of an order or a truck turned over or, you know, there's a hundred different reasons somebody went bankrupt. But you end up with these small quantities. And by small, it might be 50, it might be 2,000. But generally... It's too small a quantity for the mainstream retail system to want to work with. Well, there are people that step in and clean up those small lots, and they're called jobbers, and they tend to be bada-bing, bada-boom guys. And it's the guys who wheel and deal at the very fringes of retail that clean up the edge of the supply chain of mass retail. And the market compensates them for the fact that they don't have mass efficiencies by letting them pay half of normal wholesale. And so I said, let's start a business. Well, that that's what this company was doing that was buying and then using faxes to resell to people who sold at flea markets. And I said, gee, that's this perfect little business to to move on to the Internet. And, and I mean, would you say then that, that this as a model – 
it impacted you because of your conversations with Warren Buffett? Like, if you had not have had the influence of Warren Buffett, do you think you might not have gone down this path? Yes, absolutely. I would not have seen this. I would not have seen this for what it was had not I had been exposed to Mr. Buffett, and I would not have seen this opportunity. Right. And so it started. I mean, you, you've had you've had a lot of growth, but also as a company, it's it's not been that easy. I mean, um, as I look at the financials today, um, I don't think you're a, a profitable company yet. Is that correct? Well, we've not. Sorry, I'm sneezing. Excuse me. Sorry, if that got in your ear. Um, no, we've not. We've run. I'd say that we had four or five good years, fat years, and then a couple lean years, but we're coming back into the fat. We're, we're in a positive cash flow situation. And, excuse me, I'm sorry. We're uh, in positive EBITDA and such, which typically doesn't matter. I hate EBITDA as a, as a measure in general. It happens to be a good measure. The only time it's a good measure is when you're low on cash, which we were for a while. But we're it's out of that. It's for non-profitable, uh, unprofitable internet companies, isn't it? Isn't that the? Because you know, when I lived out in Silicon Valley, that's what everyone used, right? <laughs> well, actually, EBITDA is used by Wall Street a lot. It's across all kinds of industries, and it's it's not a good measure. A good. Um, I mean, I used to work on Wall Street, and people used EBITDA all the time then. And I remember Mr. Buffett telling me what a dumb measure it is then. It's not bad to to use EBITDA minus capital expenditures, that's a good measure. Um, and when you start getting, and there's different ways of calculating, you know, uh, operating cash flow, but uh, depending on do you want to count stock-based compensation and all kinds of things. But EBITDA minus capital expenditures is a good measure. EBITDA on its own is a bad measure. Um, it becomes a good measure if you're short on cash or if you're in the, if you're in the, point where you don't have to make much capital expenditures and we ended up in both of the, we ended up in a situation where both of those things were true so EBITDA started to mean something but even then I don't rely you know too much on it it's not as good as gap profitability under generally accepted accounting principles gap but we did we in terms of measuring whether you're in the woods or out of the woods EBITDA is a pretty good measure and and we got we've been I think positive for three quarters now and things are coming along rather nicely but we're looking forward to gap profitability too how how far off do you think that's going to be well, I think there's estimates out there for this year from uh, – I don't pay to – well, I pay almost no attention to Wall Street and what the analysts say. They – somebody told me recently that everybody the, – the consensus was people thought we were going to lose about $12 million this year. That sounded, to be honest, a little uh, overly pessimistic. I think that – Probably, I think I said publicly somewhere that we could make as much as 10. So if the range from minus 12 to plus 10 in terms of gap profit is uh, probably a good range. 10 if things work out rather nicely and minus 12 if they don't. And then in terms of what the cash flow would be, it would be that number plus about 25 or million or more. So in other words, if we re if we made just zero on a gap basis, we would actually have about twenty five million of positive cash flow and EBITDA and such. 
How long can you just keep going? I mean, let's say, so you're getting close, but how long can you keep going with losing money? Surely at some point comes you have to shut things down. But, I mean, you, you guys have been going for a long time now. No, well, when, once you're in the position we're in, once you're in positive EBITDA or positive operating cash flow, the answer is forever. In other words, we're generating more cash than we're, uh, than we've consumed. So the answer is we're, we've crossed that, that we've crossed that line, we crossed that line a year ago where we're in the position where we're not losing altitude, we're gaining altitude. Okay, because I, I think I saw some comments somewhere where um, I think it might have been you that was talking about Amazon in the past and how they had some slightly different metrics that Wall Street then was celebrating once Amazon passed those and you know is now sort of starting to do reasonably well. And, and you're like on a similar trajectory just a couple of years behind. Yeah, except the thing is they made up, to be honest, a bunch of metrics that that nobody had ever heard of and let's not count this and let's not count that and all kinds of stuff. You know, I I don't do that. My my first thing is gap profit. I want to get to that. But then secondly is EBITDA. We have explained when there are in our income statement, when there are extraordinary events, like last year we spent millions of dollars sort of buying out of contracts and closing down warehouses and stuff. And we say, okay, that's, uh, you know, we try to identify so people can understand the difference between, well, anyway, but we, we don't sort of make up pro forma numbers. Um, so, uh, but anyway, Amazon got through it and built a, a great business, and we think we have to, we built, they, they built a business that got, that reached scale. In other words, uh, their infrastructure was built so they didn't become profitable until they were a multi-multi-billion-dollar company. I forget just how big. Must have been eight billion or ten billion or something. I forget. We've we've built ourselves that we should be profitable at around a billion dollars of net of net sales. Right. And so you're around almost eight hundred million now. So you're you're getting pretty close. Yeah, we were eight hundred million last year, and we were growing twenty-seven percent in the first quarter. So. Right. So you're well on your way. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I, something I don't understand is how the model works. I mean, you're liquidating, you're liquidating stock. I mean, the internet's very good at that, and there's a lot of I mean, there's a, information is pretty free on the internet. I mean, if if um, if these guys are out there liquidating stock, can't they uh, go and get a better return by I think you call them jobbers? Couldn't they get a better return by just going and doing the liquidation themselves on eBay rather than sending it over to Overstock? No, not at all. In fact, we. We get a lot of, there's a lot of disadvantages for a high-end person to be, high-end brand to be liquidating on eBay, their own, just the channel conflict is enormous, and their own distributors will desert them, their own stores will desert them. Uh, also, the English auction is a very good system for liquidating one-offs, but when you have it's the, the English auction is, which is the classic auction that eBay uses, is not a great system if you have a thousand identical North Face parkas because you're, um, you know, your first one, maybe it's a hundred dollar parker, your first one auctions for thirty dollars, your next for twenty eight, your next for twenty seven, and then by the time you're you know, a number of auctions in, the, the prices just collapse on the auction you're giving away. So you can't auction off 
commodity goods, large numbers of commodity goods that way, one at a time. And you have the problem of how long, you know, if you have a thousand of them and if you set them up so you have one ending every eight hours, then that's going to take a year to get through a thousand. Well, if you compare that with somebody making a deal with us and we buy their overstock, load it in their truck, take it to our warehouse, put it on our site, and they have cash, it's most manufacturers are more attracted to that than to liquidating through eBay. Setting aside the fact, if you have a nice brand and you start liquidating on eBay, how would you like to be a retailer selling Cartier, trying to get a thousand or two thousand dollars a watch and have Cartier at their liquidating watches on eBay at five hundred or something? You'd be furious. So for all those reasons, no, eBay is a great business and it has. Uh, a great role and such, but there are some types of products that more work much better in this kind of a sales channel. Will Carte, so Carte will come directly to you and say, we've got this inventory we can't get rid of. Can you buy it all? And then you buy it from them at 50% of wholesale, and, and that's it. I mean, did you do that directly with Cartier? No, I don't. I'm not talking about any. I was throwing up Cartier as a potential eBay supplier. I don't really talk about our own suppliers. Uh, and no, I, I don't think we are doing business with Cartier. So... Um, so I'm not, not talking about them specific, but as a manufacturer, yeah, um, manufacturers come to us, and we're typically buying directly from the manufacturers. Um, we're uh, we also work with distributors and some retailers. But just the attraction of getting cash up front and working like that and not having to drop ship one at a time is generally more attractive to manufacturers. Do they have an inherent advantage to be working with um, someone like you that has scale versus a, a small operation? Yes, because the thing that you want to do in this business is do large amounts of take-alls. And take-alls are when you go in and you buy all... Somebody, when they want to get out of a warehouse or a product, they want somebody to come in and just take care of all of it and not cherry pick and we're at the scale now that we can do that. Right. So there's almost there is almost a barrier of entry to scale there for you. Yep. Right. Um I was extremely interested reading that uh, you you went public via a Dutch auction. Yep. Um and I'm interested to know you you mentioned that you you worked in Wall Street for a while. Did, did you come away with some really bad feelings about Wall Street? Well, I actually probably went in with some bad feelings about Wall Street. I'd sort of been raised around Wall Street or hearing about Wall Street. Mr. Buffett said you should work on Wall Street for a year and learn it, but don't don't spend more than a year there. So I went to work for a friend of his for a year. Uh, and then the, the group I worked with was a fabulous, classy outfit. But over the course of a year or so, yeah, I... Definitely had my eyes opened about Wall Street, and and have, uh, I left in the early 90s and and never missed it. And have like I say, I had my eyes opened about Wall Street to the extent there was any still any uh, uh, misunderstanding of what they're about. And I don't mean I mean I'm painting with a broad brush. There are terrific people on Wall Street, and there are people trying to do you know their jobs and they're doing good things or think they're doing good things. I think a funny crew has showed up on Wall Street since the mid-90s, which has made it uh, a, a worse place than it was before then. Right. Because, uh, I, I mean, you, 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 you had public going, you had problems going public with your Dutch auction. I mean, I, I didn't follow your going public, but I certainly followed Google's, and I remember all the, the negative stuff that came out about them. Um, 
is your feeling that mainly that stuff is the negative stuff is caused by going going public through a Dutch auction and, and not using the the regular IPO process? Well, no, the negative stuff there was caused by the banks that were being uh, the banks hate the Dutch auction process and they hate it because they like to be in a position of getting of allocating guaranteed profit and because that's where they get kickbacks. And so the Dutch auction takes out the allocation mechanism so they don't get kickbacks. So they stand shoulder to shoulder and try to keep anyone from using the Dutch auction. We went public two years before Google using the Dutch auction, and we stood shoulder to shoulder. Uh, I mean, we we saw the bank stand shoulder to shoulder and say, and I was actually told, you'll be a pariah for life if you do this. You're breaking up basically an old boy network. And... uh, but if you go out with a Dutch auction, and so that that wasn't the quote. The quote was, "You'll be a pariah for life if you go ahead with this." So, and other people, other bankers said, "Look, even if we wanted to cooperate with you, there'd be repercussions for us up and down Wall Street if we did." So it was. Uh, they really don't want to see the Dutch auction get any traction. Google, I think, made a. Hmm, tactical mistake. They announced they were going with the Dutch auction. They decided to go with the Dutch auction. They even evidently said at one point, look, if no one will work with Hambrick, we'll ju- with who does the Dutch auction, we'll just do it with them. Well, at that point, because uh, some of the banks buckled, Goldman Sachs didn't, but the other banks buckled. Nobody wanted to be left out of the Google deal. It was the tech deal of the year, of course, tech deal of the decade. So no one wanted to be let out. So they all said, well, okay, we'll, we'll just this once, we'll work in the Dutch auction. And then they got in, and then they did everything they could to sabotage it. And I think it was a very organized, orchestrated attempt to sabotage the Dutch auction for their own clients. Well, i got to say congratulations on doing what you did. That takes up. Well, it's, I'm a child of the 60s. I remember being taught that if... If you've got, like, a black friend and you want to go to a party and everybody says you can come but you can't bring him, your obligation is to hang out with, to stay friends with him and not the other people. And the fact that everybody on Wall Street, Hambrick was willing to work with everybody, but the fact that they all said, you know, I'll work Morgan, well, I don't, you know, this bank, bank A will work with Bank B, Bank B work with Bank C, but none of us will work with Hambrick, made my decision for me that that, was who we were going to work with. Yeah. Well, I mean, you did it. So that, I mean, you're risking a lot by doing that. So, yeah, good job. <laughs> I haven't made um, any friends since then. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, reading about you in the media, and you haven't, for sure. But, I mean, some people, you got to sometimes stand up and say, say what you think. So, good on you. Um, you. I, I read about Worldstock and was very impressed by that. One of my friends here in the Dominican Republic um, She's she's doing the best she can. She has a job that's not that great. It's 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 sort of the best that she can get, and she's you know she's she's making things work as much as she can. She's very creative, and one of the things she's she's been selling some stuff locally um, to to different stores around here in the Dominican Republic to tourist outlets. And one of the things she's talked with me about is, man, how can I sell this stuff in the U.S.? It would, it would be such a big market if I knew how to sell there, but I don't. And I don't know how to do it. And I'm like, well. You know, you, you need to learn English better, and then you need to go and start selling on eBay. Um, and no, perish the thought. That's exactly what we're looking for. We, and in fact, the woman who runs it is from Colombia, so she doesn't. Your friend doesn't even have to learn English. And if hook her up, we could, you know, hook them up, and we 
if you had a supply line going from the Dominican Republic, that would be perfect. That's exactly the kind of well. What, what does she make? Um, she makes mosaic. It's, it's mosaic tile stuff, like little little um, pitches made out of mosaic, kind of a little bit like from the style from Barcelona, but then a very Caribbean theme. Like I have one on the wall of my office here that's uh, of a palm tree. Um, they look pretty good, and I think they're selling pretty well locally in, in some of the places here locally. Well, you should drop me an email after this, or Camden can do it, and introduce you to Angela Ramirez, who runs the World Stock Program. Okay. Well, I mean, that, uh, it's an amazing idea, and you, you've, like, hit the nail on the head. Uh, I, I know that my friend needs that, but there's a lot of people that do, too. How, how is that actually doing? It's actually doing beautifully. It just had a great month in May. It's uh, holding its own. It's it's It's... You know, like the rest of the company, we had a two-year downturn, but we've come out of it, and Worldstock has come out of it swimmingly. It's a terrific program. Hmm. So this is, I mean, you're, you're I guess, uh, as well as being just a, a regular entrepreneur that wants to make cash, you're also being a social entrepreneur by doing this. Yeah. We're, you know, we're, my dream is to see tens of thousands or someday hundreds of thousands of people making their living around the world by supplying that in non-exploitative circumstances and keeping alive traditional crafts and in environmentally friendly ways. And I mean, it can just be, I think, a very powerful development tool. And to me, it's real development as opposed to what the West has largely tried for 60 years now, which is this very top-down, egocentric, IMF, World Bank kind of stuff. This is, you know, grassroots, bottom-up development. I'm a big fan of microfinance too. This is really just the, to me, this is the counterparty to microfinance. It's micro supply. Right, and it lets them become independent and and all of that sort of stuff. No, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I, I saw that and I was like, wow, that's exactly. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll start mentioning it to people here, so you know, maybe we can start getting some people signed up from over here. I'm interested in. I, I read that you're libertarian, and um, I went and visited Cuba about a year ago after I was reading some Ayn Rand stuff, and I personally have become quite a fan of Ayn Rand and. I think it's important for entrepreneurs to, to, to understand some of that, that kind of thought. I'm very interested to know where you stand on that. Well, on, um, on libertarianism or Ayn Rand, you know, Randians view uh, themselves as much superior to libertarians. I don't know if you're aware of that. They, well, I, you know, because to the outsiders, they look pretty similar. But Randians, in fact, um, hang on a second. Oh. Oh, Camden's here. She's saying, you are Howard Rourke. Um, I think of myself, who's the other guy? John Galt. I feel more like John Galt. Um, well, first of all, libertarianism, I think uh, you got to break libertarians into two camps in the U.S., those who think that it's all about you know, carrying guns and those who are political libertarians. I'm the latter. I guess I would say a small-L libertarian. And then among libertarians, I still think that libertarians miss some stuff, which is basically there are ways in which the market fails, uh, the environment and security. So there are market failures that you need a government to address, and you also need a government to address force and fraud. Um, and as far as Ayn Rand goes, I, I think she was directionally correct. I think that she... You know, her emphasis in terms of selling it as selfishness was uh, the virtue of selfishness and everything was probably not a great marketing 
uh, choice because it just gave her such an uphill battle, and there's ways that she could have expressed some of those ideas without being as tendentious. But, uh, yeah, I guess there are days where I feel... I, I never considered myself a Randian, and it's kind of funny because there are days when I feel like I'm living in Ayn Rand novel, to tell the truth. I don't know if you're familiar with my battle with Wall Street. It sounds like you've probably come across some of that. But on those I, days... I friends with Herb from um, CBS Market Watch. Say again? I hear you're good friends with Herb from CBS. Oh, my buddy Herb, Fluffy. Yeah, I, uh, well, I think Herb spent 20 years basically talking the book of a few hedge funds. He never wrote a story that didn't represent the interests of a small circle of hedge funds. So you just get, you know, he's just a shill. And, and anyway, I'll stop there. So, you want me to talk more about Ayn Rand or Wall Street? When yeah, I'm just in, in general, just to know, like you, you, you are you are a libertarian, but you would consider yourself not a follower of Ayn Rand. You just uh, maybe familiar with some of the, the, the lines of thought. Yeah, I mean, I've read a whole bunch of her stuff. Um, I don't think it has to be. I think that since you're asking, the Ayn Rand's great project was to found was to build a base in. Uh, in very fundamental uh, philosophies of ontology and uh, epistemology, you know, what there is in the world and how we know what there's in, and then from that build this whole tower of thought that, um, of ethics and political thought, to which I say I don't think she got the fundamental stuff right. I don't think she got the, you know, the the, the uh, basically her, ontology right the universe isn't organized the way she thinks fundamentally but it doesn't matter Wittgenstein said that in a painting of a of a lighthouse on a cliff you can erase the cliff and the and the lighthouse still stands there well similarly you can erase half of Ayn Rand's philosophy and the rest of it the political side still stands now she would deny that but I don't think she was I think she was wrong about that so uh, I'm more sympathetic to her, um, her. Well, I'd say her basic vision of that in the world there's creators and there's another set of people who are basically parasitic and value destroyers, and they, for whatever reasons, go through life destroying things, either from warp psychology or uh, they have ways of profiting from it, and that, the, and then. The mass of middle are just the mass of people are just caught between these two opposing forces. Uh, that's a that's a worldview that has some resonance with me these days. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, I want to go on to some other questions. Um, I'm just in general really interested to know. Um, there's a lot of bad stuff written about you. There's there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking of, of bad things to, to say about you and all that sort of stuff. Um, why is there so much negative stuff about you? Well, uh, I came out three years ago and said, well, I'd also point out there's a lot of good stuff too, but uh, the bad stuff, I would say, I came out three years ago and said the establishment is corrupt. There's a very deep problem in the system. Um Hedge funds have found a way to rip off pension funds. The 
the SEC and the financial press are too indolent or stupid uh, or bought off to do anything about it. And well, we thought, I mean, I, and so I hear what you're saying with all that, and I read, I, I mean, I've read through your, um, a lot of your stuff on that today. Um, I, I mean, the, the presentation you made, um, the, the, the investor, the investor um, call you did in 2005, I went through a lot of that sort of stuff. And one of the things, like when we have Watergate, for example, Watergate came along and, and then a couple of young reporters came out and exposed it all. If this stuff really is going on in, in, at this bad of a level, surely it would have been exposed by now. Well, actually, I make the comparison with Watergate all the time because when Woodward and Bernstein came along, uh, evidently a lot of what they published was already well-known in sort of the circles that know in D.C., but the press had just gotten so chummy with the powers that be that certain things weren't written about, and it took sort of two iconoclastic young reporters to do something. As far as if this stuff is going on, virtually everything I've talked about that I talked about three years ago in the Miscreens Ball has come true. Look at, you know, my first claim, and there's a huge... Uh, so to finish off the other answer, the, the reason there's so much bad stuff said is, first of all, when you come out and you say those things about the establishment, you can be sure the establishment's going to react. And secondly, a great deal of it is a blue smoke and mirrors attempt to keep the public from understanding what it is that I'm saying or what it is even that I've said. So, for example, three years ago, I did this call called the Miscreants Ball. And the fundamental claims that I spent an hour talking about was, first of all, the SEC had grown inappropriately close to Wall Street. Well, uh, the New York State Attorney General was too close to a bunch of hedge funds and was actually a, turn a dirty guy. Um, that journalists had grown too close to hedge funds. And that there was a crime going on called uh, the hedge funds were taking down companies. Uh, they were doing it using class action lawsuits brought by Milberg Weiss, uh, independent research, which was in fact not independent, and naked short selling. Now, pretty much every one of those points has, been, has, has either been proven or developed a tremendous amount of supporting evidence over the last few years. The, a senior investigator from the SEC quit the SEC, came out, wrote a public letter, said, yes, the SEC has become bought off by Wall Street. The Senate Judiciary Committee investigated and, and completely vindicated his side of the story. Of course, New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer became governor, and he turned out to be, uh, you know, it's clear what kind of a guy he is, but what isn't gotten public is, well, we'll come back to that if you want. Jim Cramer himself was caught on tape, and this is on my site, Deep Capture. He didn't mean for this to become public, evidently, but he caught on tape explaining exactly how it works, and hedge funds, and how when he ran a hedge fund, how he would manipulate the press, and he's got bozo reporters who he just fed stuff to, and CNBC is part of it. I mean, so Jim Cramer has now come out and confirmed exactly what I was saying. Naked short selling and its effects have been confirmed by Chris Cox, uh, again, there's links to this all on Deep Capture. Milberg Weiss, well, shoot, I think just yesterday, you know, they, they, you know, that whole law firm has been indicted and the top guys put in jail. I think just yesterday, Melvin Weiss got his 30-month jail sentence. And the independent research, well, that still remains to be tried in court, but we have affidavits from people at one of these independent research shops who say just it was crooked as a dog's hind leg, how, how it all works. So, what happened, though, was in an attempt to cover it up, 
this group of people on Wall Street developed, you know, they just created this public clogging that Patrick Byrne is just a guy mad that overstock stock went down. And it's about Sith Lords and stuff like that. That's all just this public barrage to try to right. deafen the public to my actual claims. So, so if I came and said, well, you, you, okay, this stuff, you know, uh, there's, there's something to this, but Patrick's really just a conspiracy theorist anyway. I mean, UFOs, you know, who killed JFK, all that sort of stuff. Do you have any viewpoints on those issues? <laughs> well, I didn't use the word conspiracy. Are you saying that you look at that, that set of dots, and do you see a, con do you see a connection there? Do you see a conspiracy there? No, I don't. Uh, I'm just saying, here's a set of dots. The, the points that you're making, I think, make a lot of sense. Um, I didn't think that in the past, but as I was reading through and researching this today, it started to make sense. I just wanted to ask, in, in general, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, where do you stand on some of the, the generally what are considered conspiracy theorist issues? Of, I'm not. I'm an anti. It's kind of ironic. It's I'm an anti-conspiracy guy. All my life, I've been arguing against when people hold conspiracy theories. I argue against them and point out, uh, you know, the flaws and and thinking how difficult it would be for too many people to coordinate their activities and so on. You know, I know, I don't know if there's a, uh, so in general, I'm not a conspiracy theorist guy, and I make a point never to use the word conspiracy in this stuff. We let, I just put the data out there, and everybody reads it, reads it and says, oh, wait, this is, a, you know, you're saying there's conspiracy. Well, if, does that data look like a conspiracy to you? I, I, I don't make that, I don't take that step. I think what there is, I'm not sure, I used the expression Sith Lord once, and right. Sith, I'm sure there's a Sith, I'm not sure there's a Sith Lord. I, another metaphor I use is an Al-Qaeda. There may just be a network of people who share a certain operating agenda and philosophy and operating methods, but it isn't like there's necessarily a cave in Tora Bora where somebody's sitting there, you know, issuing instructions. There's just a network of people who share a goal and operating methods and philosophy. But on the other hand, it's there are days when it looks like there's a great deal of coordination as well. Fair enough. Well, we know that there's some coordination. I'm sorry? We, we, uh, we, just when you finish, we better move on to the affiliate stuff. Okay. Um, but did you have anything else you wanted to say on that point? Well, I know that besides my work at Overstock, I'm involved with a site, deepcapture.com, and as a reporter. And there I have a colleague, Judd Bagley, who has dug up some tremendous – I mean, we actually have emails from people that show that they do coordinate some of this stuff. So I was reading through that site and, uh, this morning, and uh, I, I, I saw the email that you sent to <laughs> From CBS Market Watch, um, I thought it was very, very funny. Well, <laughs> and I also noticed that he didn't get a, he didn't give a direct answer in his uh, in his response. Yeah, and I haven't even published the. I'll get around to publishing someday. The uh, CBS Market Watch finally gave me a response too. I'll get around to publishing. Their, their response was basically, "We're not going to comment on the departure of Herb Greenberg." All right. Um, so to, let's talk about uh, the, the Amazon tax. Now you guys came out. Um, you were going to. You came out uh, and dropped all your New York affiliates, and now you've come in and you uh, are suing um, suing New York State. How come the change? Where do you where do you stand, and what's what's happening in this area? 
Well, we had to drop the affiliates because we can't take the risk of not collecting the tax and uh, then someday having having New York win and getting dinged for it. So we had to drop the affiliates right off, and we had to let them know as soon as we made the decision, we felt, to give them as much warning. Um, but the decision to seek an injunction is, you know, the right long-term thing to do. New York is, I think, pretty clearly doing something unconstitutional. Back about 15 years ago, the Supreme Court found that you cannot hold a catalog company responsible for collecting out-of-state sales tax. There's 7,200 taxing jurisdictions in the United States, and it's impossible. And, you know, in some jurisdictions, cotton candy is candy, and in some it's food, and there's different tax rates. And it's just there's no way that a company in Utah can sit here and know how in Paducah, Kentucky, the right way to tax every possible product is this week. It's just impossible. So the Supreme Court, I think, wisely said that burden cannot be put on the out-of-state retailer. Um, and so I think that New York's argument is, I think that their law is just directly uh, unconstitutional. And so we, we're, we're seeing, and we're not suing them for any money. We're suing them for, we're suing to enjoin them from ever getting this law uh, from ever acting upon this law, and, and we're trying to get a court to throw it out. Do you have you, do you have actually overall a large affiliate program? I mean, do, do you care much about your affiliate program, or is it something that you, most of your money, most of your revenue, just comes in from you know, Super Bowl ads and type-in traffic and that sort of stuff? Oh no, affiliates are a very nice part of our business. It's a double-digit percentage, and I would say that. You know, we to the outside it looks like we had this meteoric growth from two million to eight hundred million, and it might just look like it was all smooth. But what it really was was four or five different wars we figured out and and won or at least prospered in. And one of them, one of the big ones, was the affiliate business. We we had we were doing less than a million bucks a year in affiliate business, and when we figured out that this was a great opportunity for us. We call it like Ho Chi Minh's War of the Fleas against the Elephant. Let the rest of the big guy, let the you know they were the big guys. Let us just nibble around the edges, get good with affiliates, and really work with them. And so the affiliate business has been a uh, a big part. You know, it's a still a very healthy chunk, hundred you know much larger than a hundred million dollars chunk of our business. Uh, and we feel like we've been, you know, last year, I think it was last year around this time, Amazon came out and dealt a real blow to their affiliate program and basically said we're going to stop paying affiliates or pay a drastically reduced fee on a wide range of products and so on. We've hung in with our affiliates. We know, we know that our affiliates bring us value and we've hung in with them. And so anyway, no, it's, it's a big deal to us, the affiliate world. In fact, we've won, I mean, we've put such energy into it that LinkShare, for example, we've regularly won with LinkShare different kinds of prizes, like, you know, Merchant of the Year and Program of the Year and that kind of stuff. And that's, I think, a testament to the affiliate team who really takes it very, you know, we as a company take it very seriously. Are you are you interested in gathering more support from affiliates? I mean, I have a lot of big affiliate networks on my list. Um, do you want me to get to reach out to some of those guys? And, and I mean, are you trying to coordinate some sort of industry thing, or you prefer just to kind of go it alone with your lawsuit? Well, we'd very much like any help. And if you can reach out to anybody, uh, yeah, and have them get in touch with Jonathan Johnson, who is our senior vice president of legal affairs. 
uh, or Mark Griffin, who's our general counsel. We'd love anybody to help us put political pressure on the legislature. And, and this was a this was Elliot Spitzer's idea. He's gone now. His replacement has signed this. We think it's a bad idea for New York to be doing this. We'd love any help. And as a lawsuit, is this a lawsuit? I mean, what kind of resources are you putting towards this? Is this an internal thing that you're doing with your general counsel, or have you got, you know, like a a, 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 a big name law firm that is on outside retainer to take care of it? Uh, we have a law firm in New York. I don't think it's a big name law firm, but we're putting, you know, on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars into getting this uh, thought. Right. Okay. And long term, I mean, do you see this? Some people I've been reading are, are suggesting that this could, is going to be the trend across the entire United States. Um, is this kind of why you're going in and doing that as well, to try and stop the dam from breaking that um, causes this to happen in every jurisdiction? Exactly. And I think that what's going to happen is other jurisdictions are going to watch us fight it in New York and then decide whether um, they're going to watch it in New York, and then based on how it plays out in the courts there, they'll decide whether to go ahead with it or not. Is there anything else in, in terms of the affiliate networks or, or major publishers that they can do to, to help you? I mean, what, what kind of resources do you want them to bring? Political act, political leverage, certainly. What, is there anything else you're particularly looking for from them? No, we don't need, we don't need, need money. Um, but what is great is people writing their state legislators. I've had reason in the last few years to spend a lot of time with politicians at every level, and people would be amazed at how, you know, I think, I guess I used to think of it when somebody said, well, I'm going to write a letter to my congressman or my representative or something. You know, you just kind of assumed it went off and sat in a basket, didn't pay, didn't matter. It does matter. I mean, they track how many letters they're getting on every subject. They absolutely track it. They pay attention. It's actually much more effective than I think the general population understands writing letters to your, you know, to, in this case, your state legislators, they will respond. Okay. Not, not only in the sense of they will answer back with a letter, but it matters. If they get 50, if out of the 3,400 affiliates we, you know, severed relationship with, if 100 or 200 of them wrote different state legislators, that could make an enormous difference in Albany. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe my guys, because they, they tend to be small numbers of CEOs, they can maybe um, get their employees to do that sort of stuff. Maybe there's some ways they can get leverage there to, to make that to make that effective. Okay. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about you'd like to cover? No. Nope. This is a nice interview. It wasn't too hard, huh? No, not too painful at all. <laughs> all right. Um, well, thank you very much.